Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the New Books in German Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan, Ameris College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Jeffrey Zaller as a guest. He is the inaugural holder of the Ruth J. and Robert A. Conway Endowed Chair in Catholic Studies at the University of Cincinnati. He is also Associate Professor of History at the same institution. Today, we will discuss his most recent book entitled Reading and Rebellion in Catholic Germany, 1770 to 1918. This book appeared with Cambridge University Press and the German Historical Institute in 2019. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Well, I'm really happy to have you on, Jeff, today. And I guess I should let our listeners know or warn them that we have been uh, colleagues and friends for some time. So uh, that, that, that may or may not show up as the interview goes on. <laughs> so, um, Jeff, uh, to start, uh, I'd like to start the way I usually start these interviews, and that is, uh, I was curious if you could discuss some of your personal biography with us and how that uh, biography led to your interest in the field of German studies. Well, um, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, My dad was a fireman, and my mom was a homemaker. Five children, uh, strongly Catholic. I think in Cologne, we would be called streng katholisch, you know? <laughs> um, and if we lived in the 19th century, I'm sure we would have been center party voters. Um, and so the background uh, was was strongly religious, um, not very academic, I suppose. Um, I was the first member of the family to complete a college degree, uh, to say nothing of an advanced degree. Um, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17. There was a lot of military service in my family, going all the way back to the Second World War. And um, I followed suit. And the Marine Corps experience was important uh, important to me because I read so much. I mean, you can you can punch heads with the with the other Marines, or you can you can take advantage of the time that's available to to engage in you know more um, uh, dignified <laughs> pursuits. <laughs> and I tried to do that primarily through reading books. Um, and there was one time when I was posted for a short period at the um, the Naval Air Station at, in Pensacola, Florida. And I took my sea bag with me, which is that big uh, uh, kind of cylindrical bag that you take on ship. You pile all, all of your stuff in there. And I took that with me and I went to a used bookstore and I filled it with books. And then I took those books back with me to Panama, where I was stationed at the time. And... One of the books that I picked up in that bookstore was a short history of World War One. So I knew something about World War Two because of family background, but I didn't know much about World War One. And it was then, at that moment, that I I became really interested not only in the war but in Imperial Germany. Um, <clears throat> I served in Operation Just Cause in Panama in 1988 and 89, and then I served in the Gulf War in 90 and 91, and then and then I got out and I went to college. Went to Marquette. Studied with uh, Michael Fair, an excellent um, historian of modern Germany, um, wrote a number of books on the Catholic Church and the Holocaust. 
and I, I was only more intrigued by by German studies as a result of my uh, undergraduate uh, training under his direction. And then I decided to study with Roger Chickering at Georgetown for my doctorate, which was a great decision. He he had he had just published his biography of Karl Lamprecht, you know, uh, at the time when I was uh, in college, <clears throat> and I I liked his scholarship not only because at that time he was working heavily on World War One, and I had an interest there, um, but but you know his his biography of Lamprecht, you know, it was an intellectual history, but it was it was so so um, so so nuanced in its understanding of modern German culture. And I knew from reading other texts by Roger that uh, he also took social history seriously. So here was a guy who was interested in war and society studies, who who had a kind of capacious and embracing approach to modern German hist- historiography. And I wanted that kind of training. And so it was an easy decision for me to go to Georgetown uh, and study on, study with him there. Okay, Jeff. Uh- I have uh, one follow-up question. Could you maybe talk uh, beyond your interest in German studies? I was curious if you could uh, speak a little bit to the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular topic. Yeah, well, in the first instance, I have to tell you, it's because I love books. I, I All scholars love books. All historians love books. You love books. <laughs> Everyone we know loves books, you know, Um but I suppose I, I suppose I had a special devotion to them in the, uh, because of my my background. I mean, we didn't have a lot of books in our house. I think we had eighteen books. Um, I counted them once when I was a kid, and that didn't include the encyclopedia. I mean, that we had like eighteen books, and uh, but I was always intrigued by them. And then I had a, I had a great professor in college named John Watkins. Um, he's now at the University of Minnesota, who just really turned me on, especially to classic literature. And some of that literature appears in my study, you know, the Homer and uh, the Dante and so on. And I cherished those books and loved those books. And so I thought, you know, it'd be fun to write about books. Um, but I think more deeply, my my interest in the topic has to do with a certain kind of distaste for what I was reading about 19th century Catholic history already when I was an undergraduate. And I was reading, for example, histories of 19th century theology. and. These um these books published in the 70s and in the 80s were written um largely by uh individuals who who wanted to justify the changes of the Second Vatican Council in part by trashing the ultramontane church with all kinds of language that I thought was implausible language that was in some cases I think um historically um irresponsible you know there there was this sense in these texts that uh you know thank god for the second vatican council because the ultramontane church the predecessor of the post vatican II church was this horrible institution repressive um run by a by a, a kind of intellectually backward and um intrusive clerical establishment and then, of course, when you read German texts about the the, the council that were um, delivered in this vein, you know, the, the scholars would use all kinds of language from the Nazi period to describe the behavior of priests, for example, in the 19th century. So you get, you know, claims about the about how the laity were subjected to Gleichschaltung by their priests in the 19th century or how. Priests used Gestapo tactics, you know, to drive the laity 
into obedience. I, I thought that this language was completely irresponsible. I didn't buy it, and I didn't buy these interpretations. I mean, for, to my way of thinking, these 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 texts, these interpretations were plainly ideological. And I thought that there was a lot more to learn about 19th century German Catholicism than what I was learning in these kinds of these kinds of volumes. Um, and I wanted to learn that that history on my own. I wanted to to um, to engage in an empirical recovery, especially when it came to Catholic everyday life that would address the relationship between the laity and their priests um, in an open minded way and just see what I, I could discover. Well, then when I went to graduate school. You know, I was reading uh, a lot of the, the the literature on the Catholic clerical milieu, and a lot of that literature were, were making the same kinds of claims about the uniformity of Catholic belief and behavior as a result of clerical pressure. But then I was reading other scholars, you know, works with which you and I are both familiar, um, you know, books by people like uh, Margaret Lavinia Anderson and David Blackburn mm -hmm. and Thomas Mergel and Wilfried Lote, Helmut Smith. People were who were saying, well, you know, the Catholic story is more complicated than that. And we need an understanding of the Catholic milieu, of the Catholic experience that is that is broader, that is more accommodating to the diversity of Catholics in modern Germany, diversity by social position, diversity by cultural inclination, diversity by spiritual tendency and theological bent and so on. And I was interested in exploring the possibilities suggested by these scholars. Um, but what really got me going um, were, were two things. First of all, I was reading the works of Reinhard Wittmann, great historian. Reinhard Wittmann, he's retired now. He's in Bavaria somewhere. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a number of honorary uh, um, uh, positions. But I think his publishing career has come to an end. In any case, Reinhard Wittmann is the dean of modern German book history. And I was reading his stuff, but he never he never really addressed Catholics. At least in the in the text that I was reading at the time, the things that he was publishing in the 80s and in the 90s. And if he did address Catholics, he referred to Catholic publishing data which suggested that the church was churning out all kinds of pious texts. On the one hand, and on the other hand, he would talk about Catholic discipline. That, you know, you, you, we already know what Catholics read, um, because they were part of this clericalized church, and they always did what they were supposed to do, and therefore we know that they only read pious texts. And I was really shocked by that because, because his work in other respects was was so so um, so clearly and so successfully empirical. But when it came to Catholic reading experience, there wasn't a lot of research there. And he wasn't the only person who was kind of passing over popular reading behavior when it came to the Catholic Church. And I got the sense from reading Wittmann and others that, that among scholars, you really didn't have to do the research. The Catholic Church had the index of forbidden books, and that sent all the signals that you needed to hear. And the Catholic Church was heavily clericalized, and the lady always obeyed. So therefore, you didn't have to do the research to understand what Catholics actually read. You already knew. Well, I didn't buy that either. And then the second thing that really set me off was, was probing the history of the Association of St. Charles Borromeo, uh, which was ground, uh, founded in 1845. And this was the most fascinating thing, Michael. Uh, just listen to me on this. So 
when the Association of St. Charles Borromeo was formed in 1845, it was devoted to an exclusive reading regime of pious texts. The organization caught the eye for this reason of German bishops, and the bishops liked this to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to promote among the laity pious texts, Catholic cultural commentary, and so on, to kind of seal the hermeneutical space of the Catholic milieu. That is to say that we're going to, through, through books and reading, we're going to ensure that the Catholic lady remains loyal to the faith. Okay, this is the clerical intention. The fact of the matter is that that organization was never very successful, at least not um, in its early years. In 1870, it had all of 54,000 members. That's it, which is less than 2% of the Catholic population in Germany at the time. Nevertheless, the organization was constantly promoted in the scholarship as a, as a key institution of the Catholic milieu. And, and, and the existence of the organization itself suggested that the Catholic laity avoided modernity, that they were hostile to it, in fact, and that this hostility was fed by these pious texts. And I thought, boy, you know, that's that's making some pretty strong and serious claims on the basis of an organization that is really small and, in fact, um, to, in certain respects, ineffectual. Yet, do you want to add something? No, I think um, I, I think it'd be an interesting moment here to begin to break some of this down a little bit for our audience. And I think that from your uh, the comments you just made, I think they have a very strong sense of what you're arguing in this book. But I was wondering if you could um, perhaps, um, I guess, uh, and I think you do this nicely in the book, you know, uh, you lay out on the one hand, the narrative uh, as it has been in the past prior to your book, you know, and then you lay out your own uh, revisionist narrative in, in response to that. And so, you know, for any listeners who might not um, be familiar, say, with the concept of the Catholic milieu, right, or might not be as familiar with, uh, you know, Catholic history as, as you and I are, um, you know, could could you, I guess, just lay out what is this, uh, what is this narrative that existed prior to your book, and how does your book create this new uh, counter narrative? I guess. Yeah, sure. So, so the notion of socio moral milieus uh, has had a very successful career in modern German historiography. The idea is that uh, the pressures of modernity create. Uh, created very strong subcultures, and um, these subcultures were more or less closed, uh, that they possessed a kind of internal integrity and coherence to them for all different kinds of reasons. One of these socio-moral milieus in modern Germany was the Catholic socio-moral milieu, and um, the those who presided over it, primarily the bishops, but also the priests who worked for them, um, tried to close its boundaries. Right? They 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 uh, coordinated um, lay activities uh, in all different kinds of ways. They preached in a certain kind of style. They took advantage of modern uh, media, for example, to broadcast a, a, a message of defensiveness and hostility towards outsiders. 
in an attempt to preserve that kind of communal identity that would um, lead to the long-term success of Catholicism in contemporary conditions. Now, that's the kind of um, uh, historic uh, understanding of the milieu in the Catholic context. In the past 30 years or so, many historians have challenged that interpretation. They've said, look, there are Catholics um, who are engaged in all kinds of activities um, that broke down those barriers, middle-class elites who were seeking professional advancement, for example, and workers who were very um, uh, very well prepared to abandon clerical leadership if necessary in order to ameliorate their um, living conditions and their working conditions. Um, and so that th there is already um, a, a quite strong counter-narrative to the original interpretation. But at the core of the milieu idea, at its very center is the notion that Catholic priests wielded exceptional cultural power over the lower class lady, not over the middle class, but over the lower class lady. And we're talking about farmers, we're talking about, about uh, lower middle class types, shopkeepers, for example, and petty professionals, non-commissioned officers in the army in some cases. Um, librarians, uh, school teachers, that the, that, and certainly agricultural uh, individuals, that the, that, the, that the priests, I mean, they, they, they were successful in, in controlling, essentially controlling the minds of these people, in aligning them with the center party, the Catholic political party, in aligning them with the church's cultural agenda, in aligning them to um, Catholic uh, uh, concerns about um, about contemporary science, and it was these types of people who, in so falling into line, um, sustained the church's identity uh, in a in a kind of pre-modern mode, well into the 20th century, well into the 20th century. And I thought that this was um, implausible. And the reason why I thought it was implausible more than anything else was because no one had ever studied Catholic reading behavior. I mean, reading, Michael, is the primary intellectual act of the modern world. If you want to understand 20th century people, you have to understand the television. If you want to understand how they use their leisure time, you have to understand the television. And then in the digital age, you have to understand the PC and, and computer behavior. But in the 19th century, if you want to understand the intellectual experience of believers, you have to understand reading behavior, and no one had ever studied it. And so I thought that these kinds of wild claims about clerical control over the intellectual lives of the lady um, were, um, at the very least, ungrounded in empirical evidence. And I wanted that evidence. I wanted to know for myself whether this was true or not. So my challenge to the milieu idea is that um, I didn't find evidence in support of it. <laughs> in fact, what I found was <laughs> massive evidence of reading rebellion, which in fact stood the milieu thesis on its head. Great. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, one thing the book really does well is it also – um, you know, when you were talking, you talked about how if you want to, you know, kind of understand the 19th century, you know, you need to understand uh, reading culture. And you're really placing this examination of 19th century German Catholics, right, in this larger context of what you kind of call 
and I think other historians have called a reading revolution that that you know was affecting Europe and Germany more broadly. So uh, I was wondering if you could uh, just sort of then briefly comment on how you f- how you, how you fit these these things together in the book. Okay, so look, these are big arguments I'm making here, um, Michael. Um, first of all, I'm I'm saying that if you want to understand Catholic, uh, not just Catholic, but but if you want to understand confessional history in the in the 19th century, you must understand books and reading. I'm claiming further that if you want to understand German nationalism and the terms of national integration, you must understand books and reading. And the reason why I'm making these claims is because at the very center of confessional relations, at the very center of German national integration, you will find books and reading. Okay, And the reason you will find books and reading is because um, uh, how one related to books, how one related to modern ideas, um, betokened um, how closely one adhered to one's religious community and how closely one adhered to um, what was emerging as a dominant national discourse about belonging and and exclusion. So um, I found, especially in the context of the reading revolution of the late 18th century, which is when most scholars would date it to, most most of them will say, look, you know, the Germans really began to read in a popular at a popular level um, in after, say, 1750. I found by the end of the 18th century that these kinds of developments, both in incipient bourgeois culture and in Catholic culture, were um, were taking place. That uh, there was a kind of uh, a set of attitudes about books and reading that um, were going to regulate inclusion and exclusion. And I play out uh, in the in the text over the course of the text what that meant over successive generations. All right, Jeff, I, I think I want to, um, one question I'm really eager to ask you about is uh, a question about the methodology of the book. And what really interests me um, in this regard is I think uh, there have been a number of English language books that have come out in recent years on um, Catholic intellectual history. Uh, they usually focus on Catholic thinkers and the coherency of their thought and how their thought evolved. In some ways, what you are writing here is both an intellectual history and a social history, and you really look at how the two interact. One quote that caught me uh, at one point in your book, I think in the introduction, is when you you said you wanted to highlight the intellectually invisible people. In other words, you don't just want to know what Catholic elites thought about reading. You want to go beneath the surface and you want to get at the history from below, which you've already described for our listeners, I think, to a certain extent. But could you talk about this uh, methodological decision? And also, you know, what were the, what, did you face challenges? I think the thing that intimidates some intellectual historians about seeking the context of these ideas is, you know, they, they wonder, am I going to be able to find in the archives what I want to find about how ideas were received, how people read you know, and that sort of thing. Did he have any challenges in the archives finding the sources you wanted to find? Um, yes, and and those challenges are 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 big ones. And I, I have to tell you, I didn't know what I was going to find when I embarked on the study. All I knew was that um, <laughs> if you want to if you want to make claims about about the 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 kind of 
tendencies of development in German Catholic culture in the 19th century, you have to deal with the lower class laity. <laughs> you can't simply um, try to understand what the clergy thought. You know, maybe the laity obeyed their priests when it came to something like reading. Maybe they did, but maybe they didn't. And you need to you, you need to find evidence for the way people actually behaved. And so right from the very beginning, I thought, if I'm going to write a book that I hope will, will make a difference in the scholarship, I'm going to go after something that no one has attempted. And no one really knew about the daily intellectual experience of the great mass of Catholics. We had some books on, on the middle class. You know these books. You know, Tomas Marigal has this great book on the, on the Catholic middle class in the Rhineland. The middle class is pretty easy to, on, to, to research in the sense that they have, they have readily available sources because they write and they leave records and diaries and all the rest. But when it comes to farmers, when it comes to the lower class working, or working class plebs in the, in the Ruhr, I, you, it's difficult. It's difficult to get at what their intellectual life looked like. It's difficult to get inside those homes, which is where that intellectual life was going to take place. But I didn't want to be deterred by that. I, I, I wanted to give it a shot. And so I went to the archives and with as open mind as I possibly could. In fact, the thesis of the book was not defined when I got to the archives. I just wanted to know as much as I could know about popular reading behavior. And, and, and if it turned out that the sources declared that, in fact, yeah, the lady were obeying their priests, well, then that would have been the book. OK, I was open to that. But that isn't. But that isn't what I found. But the the the, the, ar the archival challenge, the empirical challenge, is is really difficult. So, for example, and and every historian of popular book behavior will will observe this. Everybody goes through this. If you want to engage in this kind of historiography, you're finding little bits and pieces all over the place. But you never find what you hope you'll find. You know, which are autobiographical accounts of how someone felt when they read Nietzsche. You know how someone felt when they read the Bible. They, you want those kinds of sources, but you almost never, ever get them. Instead, you get little bits and pieces across the entire historical record that have to be, have to be assembled like you would assemble a mosaic. You know, Historians will use this kind of language. It's a funny story. I tell this story. When I was, a, when I was an undergraduate, I had this friend of mine, and he knew that I was interested in the classical world. You know, I'd studied classical philosophy and classical literature, and I liked it. And he said, well, Jeff, you know, if you like this so much, why don't you just become a historian of the classical world? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And, and this is what I said. I said, the reason I don't want to do that is because I don't want to spend my career looking at shards of pottery. That's exactly what I said. And I was laughing, uh, I was laughing to myself every time I thought about this in the archives, because that's basically what I was doing. So for example, I found, a, I found a, a reference to a guy, and this utterly expresses what the book became, who always bought the, the secular encyclopedia by Myers, okay? But he also, at the same time, always bought the Catholic encyclopedia by Herder. He had, he had to have both sets of encyclopedias in his house, okay? He wanted to, to be a faithful Catholic on the one hand, but on the other hand, he wanted to be fully integrated in modern intellectual culture. Okay. And I found that reference 
in a footnote on like page 600 of this book. And so that's what the research experience was like. You go through these texts, you go through archival records, you go through the protocol Bücher of Catholic associations, you read the letters that people were submitting to their archdiocesan authorities, and you, you just put together the widest possible repertoire of sources. And then you see what that mosaic looks like. Great, Jeff. Thanks for that answer. And I, I just want to uh, get your thoughts on another um, issue from the book that I guess is somewhat methodological, and that is you really are, um, I felt like you, you formally say this at one point, and then in, I, I sensed it implicitly in other parts of the book. And that was the the issue of putting uh, a certain amount of theology into this book about Catholic history, which might seem like an obvious thing, right? But it does seem that a lot of recent social histories of Catholicism uh, don't say very much about theology, right? And it seems as if you wanted to have a social history of Catholicism that also took uh, theology seriously. So I was, I was wondering if you could explain to some of our listeners why why theology kind of disappeared from uh, German or the social history of German Catholicism and, and how your book to a certain degree bring brings it back a little bit. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this subject for a long time, Michael, and I think it's an important one. And I, I, th- I should have been more explicit about this in the book. I, I think I should have declared myself more clearly um, from the very beginning, but this was always on my mind. It was on my mind already from the, my first, my first years as a graduate student. So, okay. Theology um, had been um, a tool of historical understanding in the German historical establishment when it came to religion um, for literally decades of time. But by the 1960s and 1970s, the social, social historians were coming forward and saying, oh, you know, um, invoking theology um, when it comes to religious history is is not really very helpful. Uh, it leads to all kinds of problems. You can get you 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 might have special pleading for a theologically grounded interpretation of the past that is ahistorical. You might have um, uh, a kind of uh, uh, verbalized or non-verbalized orientation towards certain kinds of s- sources when your empirical method should be more capacious it can, and, and other problems. And so in the 1970s, by and large, theology had been disqualified as, uh, as a device for understanding the religious past of, of modern Germany. And I think that this disqualification in most respects was, was a positive development. It led to a tremendous explosion of knowledge about modern German religion not just by the social historians, but by their cultural historian um, successors. And I, I, I'm, I would consider myself a historian, um, not only who is trained in these methods, but someone who's loyal to those methods. Nevertheless, this is a claim I would make. Um, nevertheless, Michael, I believe that the disqualification of not just theology, but the broader church history, the Kirchengeschichte, of which the theological examination was a, was a part, the disqualification of Kirchengeschichte um, from the German est- historical establishment, I think, um, was, uh, has also led to certain kinds of problems. Um, and it, it goes beyond theology. Let, let, me just, let me just share with you 
um, four areas where I think um, we have experienced a methodological impoverishment. Um, first of all, nobody reads Latin anymore. I mean, when it comes to, if you want to study 19th century Catholicism in Germany, you must know Latin. Okay. If you're doing 20th century stuff, perhaps not so much, but if you're studying 19th century Catholicism or earlier, you must understand Latin. It's still the lingua franca of the church. There are all kinds of sources and important sources in the archives written in Latin. So that's, that's first. We've lost a sense of Latin. Nobody reads Latin. And I'm not the only person to complain about this. Second of all, we have no longer a, a very strong sense, not just of, of, say, 19th century German theological trends, but very few historians ha- possess a kind of thoroughgoing appreciation of the length and the depth of, in this case, the Catholic intellectual tradition. And because of that, we historians are not in a very good position to recognize changes. We just don't, we don't know what we're looking at because we're not theologically literate anymore. Third, I mean, those church historians, they knew those, they knew the small archives. They knew the small archives, Michael. You know, a lot of these guys worked in in regions they knew absolutely every document in those small archives. We, we don't go to small archives anymore. A lot of the archives, have, as you know, when it comes to church history, have been located in the, in the diocesan centers. But there's a whole number of parishes, for example, in the Catholic case, that still retain their own archives. And we don't go to those archives. And then finally, the church historians, you know, they really had a, had a good sense of, of individuals and the shades of their um, intellectual personalities. And so what I wanted to do in this study, and I suggested in different ways, what I wanted to do in this study was to recapture these four emphases of Kirchengeschichte, Latin, theological awareness, attention to small archives, and attention to individuals and their intellectual personalities, to recover an appreciation for these methods and unite them with a, soci- a socially grounded um, cultural history of modern German religion. So that's my method. And, um, I suppose I'll write an article about that and lay all that out, um, for the field at some point and hopefully in the future, uh, in the near future. But that's my, that was my basic approach. And I, and I felt that that kind of approach would break open the milieu idea. It would break it open so that the history of modern German Catholics at the popular level could be reimagined and redescribed in an entirely new and I hoped exciting way. Great. And I, I think we'd all look forward to that article if it comes out. Um, but can I ask uh, maybe just uh, one follow-up uh, to your answer there? You were talking about um, sort of understanding complex uh, sort of intellectual personalities. Was there one um, intellectual personality in this book that you, that, uh, you'd be interested in you know, sharing with our listeners at this point that might uh, be a little bit of a teaser to get them to want to read the book? Yeah, well, um, there is. And uh, a number of people who've read the book have already shared with me their surprise that they had never heard about this individual before. And this individual is Hermann Hertz. Hermann Hertz was a priest uh, from Swabia. And he was called by the Borromeos Verein to um, renew it. I didn't have a chance to complete my thought earlier when I was talking about the Borromeos Verein. Uh, I was talking at the end about how 
the association had never attracted a significant membership. By the 1880s, the organization was almost dead. <laughs> they were losing members. They weren't gaining members. They were losing members. In fact, by 1890, their, their membership was something like 49,000, which was down um, nearly 10% from what it had been in 1870. And then membership shot through the roof, shot through the roof. It, went, it, it, it increased 534% over the next 20 years. And the way historians have interpreted that rise in membership, that radical rise in membership, is they've said, see, the Boromir's Farine, with its exclusive regime of pious texts, was so successful that Catholics in the Wilhelmine period were just as anti-modern as they had ever been. But what these scholars never, ever did was to actually read the documents of this organization. This organization failed because it had refused to respond positively to lay reading demands. Lay reading demands for what? Lay reading demands for modern science. Lay reading demands, above all, for entertainment, secular literature, fiction. Lay reading demands for home economic texts, for contemporary periodicals, for um, all manner of texts that had never been part of Catholic book culture. The organization in the 1890s realized that if it didn't change, they were going to fail utterly and they would have to close their doors. They, they, they organized themselves in the early 1890s and they said, we're going to change and we're going to start we're going to start offering these kinds of secular texts to the Catholic, to the Catholic population, even in our own parish libraries. There's something like 4,400 parish libraries sponsored by the Borromeos Friend by 1914. You could get these secular texts in the parish libraries, okay, by that time. The person who was charged with the responsibility for uh, for the day-to-day the -day details of this revolution in Catholic reading behavior, and it is a revolution for all different kinds of reasons, was Hermann Harris. They pulled this guy out of Swabia. He is 29 years old. And he came up there and said, we're going to change. And change for him meant um, finding a creative theological justification for these alterations in the, in the, in the church's um, cultural and intellectual heritage. Uh, by invoking, for example, faith and reason, by invoking the unity of truth, by arguing uh, that Catholicism had never been hostile to empirical science, um, by saying that uh, that uh, non-Catholic literature had um, cultural merit that Catholics should be experiencing, by arguing that um, it was essential for Catholics lower on the social scale to improve their position through ed, through a wider educational experience, an educational experience that should be administered by the church. So Hermann Hertz is a is a really important cultural negotiator in the Wilhelmine, Wilhelmine period of German Catholicism, and I, I I hope very much that that his history, his importance is recognized uh, by other scholars. Great, yeah, and I, I've was wondering at this point if you could uh if we could take um a a step toward i guess contextualizing the life of hertz and 
I think throughout the course of the book, it would be fair for me to say that you really trace in some ways two rival reading cultures, right? And that is, by, by the late 19th century, that's the context into which Hertz is dropped, I guess. But um, you have this kind of, a, the, the establishment of a, I guess, Protestant bourgeois reading culture on the one hand, and then the creation of a reading culture that's encouraged by the Catholic Church on the other. So I was wondering if you could talk, uh, I guess, about how are these reading cultures rivals with one another? How did they, despite this rivalry, have some similarities to one another? And how did everyday Catholics react? So I guess I'm really asking three questions, uh, but you can pick whichever ones you want to respond to there. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot to talk about there. And um, the, the first chapter, the first two chapters of the book lay all this out. Um, I want to I want to mention about those first two chapters there was a there was just a strategic dilemma um, in organizing the book that I I thought about for a long time, and the strategic strategic dilemma was that these these subjects are so complicated, and they drew from historical references that were went so deep into the modern European and German past that um I didn't know how to handle them. I, I didn't I, what I didn't want to do to be sure was to interrupt the narrative. Uh, with a whole string of asides, kind of intellectual, analytical asides to explain um, the de the development of German book history in these kinds of ways. And so I, I decided to put all of this kind of developmental work in the first two chapters. But, but, but the basic idea, Michael, is this. When popular Germans, lower class Germans, started to read there was a great deal of concern among German book elites, not only among Protestants, not only among Catholics, not only among Jews, among everybody. You have to, you have to appreciate this, Michael. I mean, for, for most of Western history, very few individuals were accorded the right to read. And the reason why they were uh, the, the reading experience was so restrictive. I mean, there are lots of reasons for it, but one of the main reasons was because um, reading was was closely bound up with ideas of social standing, and uh, it was a marker of leadership. This is a tradition in German book culture that goes all the way back to the medieval period. And these elites in the 18th century, as they started to realize that that the everyday German was going to start to read, they were worried about what these individuals were going to get their hands on and what their reading behavior would would um, would mean, what it would uh, entail for German national coherence or confessional coherence or a religious community's coherence. How would Germans fit together if you have all different kinds of people reading all different kinds of texts without any kind of um, authority determining what those texts were supposed to mean. This is a characteristic problem of silent reading behavior when there's no longer a, a, a culturally approved for laser, that is to say someone who reads to audiences so that that individual can ensure proper reception of a text meaning. These individuals in the 18th century, they're like, all of them, they're saying, okay, we've got a serious problem on our hands because all of these people are going to start to read texts and I have no idea what the implications are going to be for our communal life. Is in that context 
that you start to see the development of contemporary reading cultures that, in fact, in the German case, were rival reading cultures. And one of them that I talk about a great deal is the is the Protestant bourgeois reading culture. And it, there are other people who are who are um, devoted to it, but it's primarily primarily a Protestant bourgeois reading culture that was centered on this notion of geschmack or taste. Okay, you know, and I say to you, taste and what it means. You will know what that means. It means a kind of refinement, a kind of style. Well, geschmack in the Protestant book culture um, suggested a kind of public good or pri- as well as a private excellence that identified social leadership on the basis of correct book behavior. Okay, you shouldn't just read anything. You shouldn't just read trash. You should read dignifying books that elevate your personality above its base nature. You should read books that supply the right spirituality and the right knowledge and the right public and private virtues. Okay. This kind of book culture was oriented to the values and the style, therefore, of a single social class. The emerging social class that would dominate culture in Germany in the 19th century, we're talking about the bourgeoisie. And it was geared towards, in fact, separation from undeserving, defiling others. In the 18th century, this meant a lot of different kinds of people. In the 19th century, this means primarily Catholics. So, Geschmack at the center of um, uh, bourgeois reading culture was a, um, a kind of tool of cultural distinction that identified um, who belonged and who did not. Catholic book culture was very different. It was very different. It was also grounded in a gastronomic metaphor. Okay, taste is a gastronomic metaphor. And you find these metaphors, of course, all over book history. Um, and I lay this out primarily in the, in the, in the second chapter. But Catholic book, book culture was also grounded in a gastronomic metaphor, but it wasn't geschmack. It wasn't taste. It wasn't about uh, fortifying the establishment of the emergent bourgeoisie. It was grounded in this, this idea of delectatio, Latin term, delectation, um, which, which had to do with um, ontological fulfillment. This is uh, the idea that human beings, as created by God, um, have certain natural tendencies, um, teleological tendencies in their nature, and that these teleological tendencies ought to be gratified by certain cultural objects that uh, bring them into a, 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 bring them into completion. And so the books that you would want to read were edifying books, especially spiritually edifying books um, that would um, uh, lead to a fuller realization of who you were supposed to be as a Catholic, who you were supposed to be as a Christian son of God or daughter of God. Okay. This book culture was also directed towards communal um, coherence and integrity, but that communal um, in- integrity and coherence was meant for members of the church only. So you had these two very different book cultures with very different kinds of um, kind of social and cultural aims that competed for adherence. I mean, this is this is the other dimension of this late 18th century kind of environment 
where there's a concern not only about the expansion of literacy to the lower orders, but that the adherence of those individuals to different book cultures was up for grabs. And you, you wanted to promote your own book culture. You wanted to build it and you sustain it and you wanted to promote it so that you wouldn't lose people, that people wouldn't peel off in search of other literate experiences. So these two book cultures, they clash primarily in the Western provinces of Prussia where they come face to face with one another. Now, the interesting thing about the book is, and I would ask myself this question repeatedly, to what extent were Catholics abandoning their own book culture for this secular bourgeois alternative? And I find that by the end of the by by the end of the study in 1914, um, the Catholics were very comfortable with what they were getting from non-Catholic sources. Yeah, and uh, Jeff, I wonder if we could sort of uh, talk about this moment, uh, you know, maybe on the eve of World War One or at the turn of the century. Um, other Catholic historians have talked about this coming out of the tower moment, uh, you know, in the early 20th century for Catholics in Germany. Uh, I think you narrate that uh, in a kind of interesting way because you had Catholics who felt marginalized on the one hand by pers- persecution or marginalization by, you know, Protestants, liberals, non-Catholics. Uh, they wanted to reaffirm their confessional identity in some ways, but at the same time, they um, they they want to integrate. They want to join this sort of secular book culture and this larger sort of. They want to embrace some type of larger national German identity. I was wondering if you'd maybe uh, you know maybe narrate how you handle that toward the end of the book. Well, um, that's a very big issue uh, when it comes to this this particular study. Um, the main uh, kind of dimensions of this. Uh, drive towards national integration, cultural integration, um, were primarily intellectual. I'm very much impressed by the fact that that Catholics were seriously concerned about their alleged deficit in education. Let's put it this way. Um, Catholics generally in the 19th century, but definitely by the Wilhelmine period, had been told by non-Catholic Germans constantly that there was something wrong with them intellectually, that they were doom, that they were muttonheads, that they, um, their intellectual life was trivial that they were obscurantists, that they belonged to a Verdummungsanstalt, a stultifying institution. And the reason why they um, bore all of these negative characteristics was because they belonged to a clericalized religion, and the priests themselves were dumb and backward and retrograde, and they deli- these priests deliberately tried to hold the laity in a condition of subservience by denying them the delights of modern learning. I, and they had been told these things so many times 
that in fact, yeah, there, you know, the Catholics themselves started to develop this sense that there was something wrong with them, that they were behind Protestant Germans, behind even Jewish Germans in many, in many, many areas of contemporary life because they belonged to um, a church with no thriving intellectual uh, life. And, and this caused tremendous pain and tremendous confusion, not least of all because those who knew their churches past knew that the Catholic Church had sustained learning in the West, that it had a robust intellectual heritage that was different, to be sure, than a scientifically grounded uh, modern Wissenschaft. But nevertheless, um, the, the church's traditions and learning were real and that they should be honored. In any case, by the Wilhelmine period, um, Catholics across the board, not just the middle class, but lower class Catholics and the clergy, all of them, with, with very few exceptions, said, we need to do something about this. <laughs> we have got to do something about these perceptions that we are intellectually retrograde, because if we don't, our people could find themselves perpetually at the bottom rung of immiseration in contemporary industrialized Germany. And so by the 1890s, even before then, the 1880s, I think, is when the change really starts to happen. By this time, they start to go after education in a very big way. Uh, they go after popular education administered by their church associations. They start to um, enter the, um, the the higher schools, the higher secondary schools, and they push themselves into the universities to the extent they can. And not just, and not just men, but women also. So one major dimension of Catholic integration at this period that, um, um, that is at the very center of my book for obvious reasons is um uh, is is this drive towards um towards overturning the stereotypes of bildungsdefizit um through a more active intellectual life and at the center of all of that is reading behavior because books conveyed knowledge Right, Jeff. Well, I think um, at this point, uh, I certainly have a lot of open questions, but I do think I've taken up uh, quite a bit of your time. Um, so I am going to have to direct our readers to uh, read this very uh, kind of rich and compelling book uh, so they can get a lot of its uh, nuances. And I think your interview will hopefully compel more people to buy it and read it. But uh, I'd like to pose the traditional New Books Network final question to you, and that is, what project are you working on now? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm doing a couple of different things. Uh, um, some years ago, the German Historical Institute approached me and um, asked me to um, put together a team of scholars um, to work on their new project, digital project in the history of knowledge. Um, the German history of knowledge is part of a broader um, enterprise called German history intersections. And it's a, it's a primary source recovery project in a number of different areas um, intended for students, for scholars, for the, anyone interested in German history, really. And the, the, the module that I was assigned, um, as I say, is the history of German knowledge since 1500. And so four of us came together, uh, Mike Printy um, at Yale, and Chris uh, Neumeyer at the Center for Contemporary History in Potsdam, Anne Maris um, at Regensburg, 
we got together, the four of us, and we started looking for primary sources in the, the history of modern German knowledge. And it was just a blast. It was just so much fun. I learned so much from these people. Um, and we, we have a collection now of 220, I want to say, documents, images, and videos that will be part of this, um, this digital project for the German Historical Institute in the U.S. And it's coming online uh, this fall. So I'm 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 engaged in the prime uh, in the final work for that project. Um, I'm writing some some uh, chapters for edited volumes on 19th century uh, Catholicism. I'm editing a book with um, Tony Steinhoff, Anthony Steinhoff at the University of Montreal, called um, "The Handbook of Religious Culture in 19th Century Europe." which is a lot of fun, great, great challenge um, to, to organize 22 um, scholars in this, in this area. But uh, Tony is a great colleague and, and he's very, he's very, he's very good at this kind of thing. So I'm learning a lot from him as well. Um, and then finally, I'm working on a new monograph and this monograph is, is, is entitled tentatively at least Catholics and natural science in Germany, 1830 to 1914. And I've always been thinking about these subjects, Michael. I, Again, I, I'm interested in popular Catholic life and what that lived experience of Catholicism in important areas, reading, first of all, and second, um, in, in natural science, what their everyday experience of contemporary learning and contemporary leisure activities implied for the overall coherence of, of the Catholic subculture in Germany. So um, I'm, I'm really enjoying this work on science. I've given a couple papers on it. But um, uh, the, the learning curve is very steep. The philosophy of science, theologies of science in the 19th century, the primary sources, it's a real challenge to me, but I, I, I'm enjoying it a great deal. Well, that's great, Jeff. I mean, first of all, I really look forward to seeing the digital collection and uh, I look forward to the edited collection. And, uh, you know, I also look forward to this monograph. So it sounds like, Perhaps at some point in the future, you'll have to return to New Books in German Studies to discuss one of these uh, two fourth or two future books uh, that might come out. But um, yeah, so uh, thank you for giving us your time today, Jeff, and thanks for being on the show. Um, I appreciate very much your invitation, Michael. Thank you. All right, great. And to our listeners, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Jeffrey Zaller. We discussed his recent book, Reading and Rebellion in Catholic Germany, 1770 to 1914, published by Cambridge University Press and the German Historical Institute in 2019. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to listen. <laughs>